You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 24, Acts 24, as we are continuing on in our series here in the book of Acts. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming forward with Bibles and raise your hand, they'll give you a Bible and you can follow along in the message. If you don't have a Bible at home of your own that you can read, please take that and read it this week and allow God's word to do a work in your life. Encourage you to have a pen in, in hand, piece of paper to take notes that connection card uh, handout that you were given would be a great thing or a journal to, to write notes on what we're talking about and write down references and go home and study the Word of God. And uh, I'm just so thankful for uh, the many people it takes as we serve the Lord together here as the church. People arriving, just if some of you just want to say thank you to uh, our, our government still for allowing us to have an extra hour of sleep still. Wasn't that awesome that some of you did that? And, uh, um, and, and maybe that will change and that might be nice. But uh, that extra hour was great. But that also meant that, that uh, some of those who were serving here this morning got a little extra sleep. That means I get to preach for an hour extra, and uh, so we're just going to saddle up and get up. But did you know, I, this morning I was in the back a little bit, and there's a hubbub of activity taking place. At 7 a.m. already, the trailer's pulling up here, things are getting set up, sound checks, all of that stuff, these drums and all the cables and wires are covered up here, and the work that takes place, setting up the kids' rooms, the preparation this week to study the Word of God for the kids, for the message this morning, the rehearsals, the practice, so much work, and we're just so grateful for the many faithful servants who serve here faithfully. And uh, even this morning now, this uh, service is being broadcast to maybe one or two people in theater number four as we're getting ready to do a live stream into there for overflow to allow more people to be a part of this on Sunday morning. The camera's now been moved to the back, a lot of experimenting and, and, and that going on. And so we're just thankful for the many people involved in serving in these ways as we serve the Lord together. We're doing it for Him. We're not doing it for our church. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're not doing it for our fame, our renown. We're doing it for Jesus. Amen. And he is worthy. He is so worthy. All right, Acts 24. That's a little talk before the message, and so that one was for free. Now, you can set your clocks now, an extra hour of preaching. Here we go. And so, through the centuries, and, and just want you to think a little bit about this, there have always been significant courtroom trials that have taken place. And oftentimes, it can be coined the trial of the century. In 399, the trial of Socrates ended with him being condemned to death by, by poisoning because he was corrupting the youth of the day and not believing in the gods of the state. And so he was put to death. In 1633, you see a picture there, the trial of Galileo and, and his subsequent imprisonment that took place for, for promoting that the earth revolved around the sun, such heresy that, that he was teaching. In, in 1932, coming up to a little more modern times, the Vanderbilt custody trial in the United States garnered the attention of so many people. And then in the 1960s, the trial of serial killer Charles Manson. Again, the trials of the century, or at least maybe not the century of the decade that captured the imaginations, the hearts, the, the interest, the concern of, of society. Probably one of the most famous or infamous trials in recent decades, and, and probably many of you who are, would be probably 30 or 40 plus years of age, you would say, what would be kind of, you know, the, the current trial of the century? And most of us would say... O.J., yes, O.J. Simpson, for whatever reason, has garnered a lot of attention through the years, and, 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 uh, and, and that took place a long time ago. That was in the 1995, so that's going back a long ways, but then also the impeachment trial, the hearings and proceedings of Bill Clinton also were labeled as one of the top kind of trials of the century. In Canada, there's been some infamous courtroom trials that have taken place. In the 1980s, Colin Thatcher, who was found guilty of first degree murder for killing his wife. He was a Saskatchewan government legislature cabinet minister and the son of a former premier. And that night that he supposedly, allegedly killed his wife, he's still claiming his innocence even though he has served time and is now out of jail. In fact, one of the men in our church, Eric, has written a book uh, regarding this case. Uh, that night that the murders took place, that Joanne Wilson was murdered, I was with the youth group that I was a part of in Regina and we drove past this, what became 
became known to us then, not at the time of the murder scene of what took place there in the city of Regina. Again, took the attention, especially of Western Canada, if not all of Canada. And then also, a number of years later, sadly, the serial killer, Paul Bernardo, and his wife, Carla Homolka. Well, in, in Acts chapter 24, where we're at today in God's Word, we have a very dramatic courtroom scene taking place. Now, this isn't necessarily the trial of the century, but it was a big trial. It was a big deal to the Apostle Paul. He's on trial, and he is in the trial of his life, literally. The prosecution, the Jewish leaders, they want him in prison. They want him dead. Because his teaching, his life, just who he is, seems to cause a disturbance. It's rubbing them the, right, the wrong way. And his very presence was a threat to their way of life, to their religion, to their power, to their control. And you'll remember from last week in Acts 23, Paul was in prison in Jerusalem. And, and as he was in prison in Jerusalem, he was in there because he had been preaching the gospel. He was testifying about... or. Even in, the, in prison, he was testifying about Jesus. Before that, he was doing it as well. And pre preaching and testifying about Jesus landed him in the Roman prison in Jerusalem. And basically, they had him in there because it was for his own safety, because being out in normal society would have landed him quite possibly dead at the hands of the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead. But it was there last week, if you remember, and if you weren't here last week or forgotten, go back and listen online. It was there in the prison cell when Paul was at the lowest of his low that Jesus himself came and ministered to him and spoke those important words, important words that we can hear and we can understand to be truth in our reality, in our lives today. When Jesus spoke to him, said, take courage, for I have overcome. Take courage, I am with you. In other words, be constant. Don't give up. It's hard, Paul. But just as you have been faithful, you have, you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, you're going to get your wish. You're going to get what, what it, it, you have desired for years. And that is one day you will testify in Rome. You will make it to Rome. And indeed, years later, he would testify about Christ in Rome. And, and, and in fact, the remainder of the book of Acts documents his long and winding road to Rome. And, and, and we're just at the start, down at the bottom right-hand side there of the picture that you can see. There he is. He's still in Jerusalem. But eventually, he's going to make it all the way across the screen there. He's going to make it to Rome. And his, the twists and the turns that will take place in the following chapters of the book of Acts will be filled with all kinds of, I didn't see that coming. Paul didn't see this happening. He kind of, he, and, and if it was a direct path to Rome that he thought he was going to be on, well, that was just not going to happen to him. And oftentimes it isn't for us as well. We can plan out our road. We can think we've got life nailed down. We have plans. We have an actions. We have everything all in process for that to take place. And then it all gets messed up. And it can be filled with, I didn't see that coming, but God is faithful. He saw Paul through. He will see us through as well in our lives. And so last week, again, Paul was in Jerusalem, in Rome, but then, if you remember, he was then transferred in the middle of the night by 470 Roman soldiers and horsemen to Caesarea. And so now, look at it, it's going to move. There it is, the little star, the little, little marker there, moved to Caesarea. And, and, and there he, uh, now he's in jail in the Roman castle, in, in the place where um, Felix um, Antonio Felix is the governor there. And, and so here he is now in, in prison. And we actually have some pictures. This would have actually have been the place where Paul would have been under the care of Antonius Felix in the Praetorium, just on the Mediterranean. So if you're going to be in prison, this would be a pretty sweet place to be on the Mediterranean side of the world and, and uh, enjoying the nice sea breezes that were there. And Paul ended up spending two years of his life in prison here. As you will see a little later, he had certain freedoms and liberties while he was in prison, but he was confined, was in prison in Rome here in Caesarea. You see, the reason why Paul was there is because he was a bit of a hot potato. Because the easiest thing for, for them to do was to kill Paul. It would have just been so easy, just kill him, be done with him, the Jews would be happy. But because he was a Roman citizen, he could not be put to death without a fair trial and for good reason. Just because the Jews wanted him dead wasn't good enough. And so Paul is now going to have his day in court, so to speak. 
Now, every courtroom trial that you watch on TV in the movies or even here in the city of Kelowna, down if you go to the Court of Queen's Bench, you will often see three basically functions and three different sort of people involved uh, or personnel that would be involved in any courtroom drama or any courtroom scene that takes place. You have the prosecution that are bringing their charges. Then you also have the defense who is giving a defense of, of the charges and, and of the person who is on trial. But then you also have the judge who is rendering the verdict. And so we see the, these three different players in the court scene as well as you have the witness or you have the person who is alleged to have done something wrong. So in Acts 24, we have this classic courtroom scene taking place. The Jewish leaders have their high-priced lawyer, we're going to see. I mean, he, he is a big-name dude. Uh, church history tells us about him. And he is bringing charges and accusations, and he's a smooth talker, and he is going to make sure that they work towards a conviction. But then we have Paul, who doesn't have money or doesn't have a lawyer, and so he gives his own defense. And then we have Antonius Felix, who is the judge overseeing this case. And so here we have Paul standing unashamed in his witness for Christ. An unashamed witness that is something, not just for the Apostle Paul, but that is something for all followers of Jesus Christ. It is one of our four pillars that you see here on the far left, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That we desire to be a people and a church, not just the pastor, just not the church leaders, but that we would boldly declare Jesus Christ with those around us, sharing the good news with him about Jesus. And, 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 the, and, and Paul would write in Ephesians 6, and he says, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is declaring, even here in this courtroom trial, he's going to declare his faith, his allegiance, his obedience to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of hostile opposition. And we can learn so much from him. We just might think, well, it's for somebody who's in a courtroom scene. No, each one of us, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to not only live, but to also testify to Jesus Christ. We are to live and to stand and to speak for him. And yet our culture is becoming more and more hostile, isn't it, towards biblical Christianity. We're seeing this more and more. And sadly, many Christians and churches are capitulating to culture and false teaching. They're starting to accept it or think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's very rarely a week that goes by that I don't see, whether it's in social media or in different Christian news streams of, of various pastors and ministries or, or denominations that continue to keep becoming more and more worldly, separating themselves from the truth of God's word and settling for a different truth, one that is easier to swallow in society. We are living in a day where it is a greater sin to hurt a person feelings than to reject biblical truth. You get that? You understand that? You see that? Are we seeing that today? That it's becoming a greater sin and a greater, you know, issue to hurt someone's feelings than to stand before God and to reject biblical truth. And we're turtling in so many different ways. Today to be pro-life means, means that you hate women. <laughs> That's not true. We love women. We love their babies that, 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 that God has placed inside their womb to be aligned or, or to be against same-sex marriage or gender fluidity or to believe that Jesus is the only way to God is religious bigotry today and is seen as hatred towards society. Again, it's simply not true. And how important it is, folks, that we stand firm in the faith, stand firm in the truth of God's word. We speak the truth and we do it, though, in love. And sadly, there are those who are speaking the truth and they're not doing it in love. And yet it's that battle of speaking the truth, but doing it with a heart of love and compassion, and we can learn so much from Jesus and how he spoke to people. We need to know how to be clear and articulate what God's word says on different issues. Not just, hmm, hmm, yeah, um, hmm, I, I, I don't know, okay, well, well, you just shouldn't, the Bible says so. No, we need to know the word of God. And sadly, today there are, there are, Many have such a superficial understanding of God's word. 
And that, that's here in our church. That's in Christian society today. We just have a superficial hovering of God's word in our lives. And, and the moment that opposition arises, people will abandon their beliefs and at times even their faith. We'll start coming up with the phrase, did God really say that? Or he didn't really mean that was then, this is now. If we are not clear on our convictions and clear on what God's word says, we may not stand when trouble comes. God's word predicts that. And we have to be people of the word. There's a great link in the E! News this week in the Go Time section, an article that my uncle wrote just recently, a good word for the church and being prepared for what is coming. He compares what is happening today to Hitler, to, to uh, Germany in, in, in Hitler's day and how so many of the churches capitulated to the culture and to even the teaching and the ways of Hitler. We need to be so careful. Oh, how we need to pre be preparing ourselves by being students of the word of God. Superficial answers aren't enough. And for parents raising children and teenagers, need to be grounding them just not in the simple little answers and the simple little Bible stories. You need to, to, to take and tackle the tough issues with your children because they're facing it. You know how we need to be prepared. We need to be getting better. And, and that is why even as a church, we need to get better at digging into God's word, in knowing God's word, in feeding ourselves in God's word, just not coming here on a Sunday, closing the book and say, see you next week but personally digging into the word of God ourselves and, and knowing it and, and loving it and worshiping the Lord through it and, and being grounded in it is so important that we do that. We need to get better at this, folks. Meditating on God's word. It was so funny, as I was preparing the sermon, I put the word meditating, I must have messed up, and, and spell check auto-corrected it to medicating ourselves on God's word. And I kind of laughed, and I thought, you know what, that's actually true, that's actually right. Uh, we need to be medicating ourselves in the truth of God's word. And we must do that because there's so much spiritual sickness and disease all around us. And the way that we keep being infected or being affected from the disease and the sin and the culture around us is to have a healthy dose of God's word in our lives daily and to be grounded in the word of God. That is where there is hope. That is where there is truth that we can find for ourselves, but we can offer it to others. I've been traveling a lot lately. I think the month of October, I was gone 14 days, and that was just far too much for my liking. And, and, and thankfully, uh, I mean, there were good reasons to go, but it's good to be home now, I think, through until Christmas, Lord willing. And, and it's funny, though, in my, in, in my bag that I take around basically everywhere I go uh, throughout the course of the week, I've got a nice little leather bag. It has my, my computer. It has an iPad. It has uh, all the important stuff, headphones. There's a power bar in there. There's all the vital things. And one of the things I have in there, and I actually brought it this morning, but I left it, I think, somewhere in the back. I, I dug out of there this morning. I have a nice little Ziploc bag of pills, of, of different meds, if you want to call it. I'm medicating myself when all of a sudden I start getting a tickle in my throat, or even the other, it was a few weeks ago when, when Brett, our, our discipleship director, uh, was in the office. He said, hey, just stay away from me. And I'm like, he says, I've got a cold. I've got something nasty here. I dug into my bag and I started popping Ignatia, some oil oregano, uh, vitamin D, vitamin C. I carry some Tums in there. I keep, carry some throat spray. It's just like, you know, you got to get, you know, medicated in order to keep yourself from getting some of that stuff. Well, in the same way, we've got to be medicating on the Word of God through meditating, through reading it, through studying it, through, through, through discussing it, and being people of the Word, how important that is in our lives. And so, when the day of trouble comes, we will stand firm when we are living our lives and building our lives on healthy doses daily of God's word. And God's word has an answer for society's ails. God, God's word has an answer for whatever it is that we face. 
God's word is sufficient. God's word is able. It gives wisdom and direction for us. So let's see how Paul stood and gave an unashamed witness. And so here we get into Acts chapter 24. And, and so here we see him boldly proclaiming Christ as he's in the court trial, the trial of his life, literally. So here he is in prison in Caesar's uh, praetorium here in Caesarea. Verse 1, and after five days, the high priest Ananias, this is the guy who gave the order last week for Paul to be punched in the face. That's that guy, all right? He came down with some elders and with a spokesman, one Tertullius. Tertullius now was a famous orator. Uh, he was basically the high-priced lawyer. He was the Johnny Cochran, if you want to call it. Um, or, or, or who was the guy in the O.J. Simpson who was the, the prosecuting attorney? Anyone remember? Sorry? Something like that. Yes, wonderful. Couldn't quite hear. That's okay. So anyways, this Tertullius is the high-priced lawyer, the, the one who is coming in, and he's going to prosecute this case. And, uh, and, and no doubt he was being really well compensated for this as well. He didn't come cheap. They laid before the governor, picking it back up here um, in the end of verse 1, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying... So, just so you know, Tertullius here, what's he going to do? He's going to start with some opening statements. And it was tradition there in the courtroom and in those days. You start with a little bit of flattery. You butter up the judge a little bit. You get him in a good place so that you can sucker punch him with, you know, whatever you're trying to bring to him. And so, it's really interesting here, though, just as we read this, how just totally over the top Tertullius goes. So, let's pick it up partways through uh, verse 2. Since through you... O king, we enjoy much peace. And since by your oversight, most excellent Felix, reforms have been made for this nation. Now, if the fact checkers were actually checking here, it would have been ding, 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 ding. He was just lying through his teeth here. I mean, he was not an honorable man. He was a horrible man, history tells us. He was corrupt and selfish. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Are you kidding me? The Jews hated him. They couldn't stand him because of his reforms. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So here he's just going over the top with the charges, and we, we're getting the summary here. Then in verse 10, it's Paul's turn. And now when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. Paul does not flatter Felix at all here. He does acknowledge, yes, you've been overseeing this nation for plenty of years. But notice that it's it. Paul is he's pumped. He's excited. To be able to, to, to give a defense, and, and, and even more than Paul just defending the actions of what he was accused of, he's given a defense for the gospel. And we too should have a sense of joy, of privilege, when it comes to sharing Christ. It's the best news ever. And so Paul is fired up. He's cheerfully ready to give his defense and share the gospel with Felix. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with, with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. In other words, they have no proof. They have no proof of what they're saying. There's no witnesses. Verse 14, and this I do confess, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, and having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. 
So Paul argues here from the point of Judaism, from the Old Testament law. He's basically saying Judaism, the Old Testament rightly understood, will lead, will culminate in faith in Jesus Christ. He's following the law and the prophets to their logical conclusion. And that is the natural outcome of the Old Testament, of, the Jew, of what the law and the prophets had to say, would be to reveal Jesus Christ, who had now had been revealed to the world. He's basically saying, I'm the most Jewish of them all. Guilty as charged. I've done this. I believe this. I'm just going where the Bible is leading me to go, he's telling them. Because it all leads to Jesus, who one day, and he talks about the resurrection here, who will one day resurrect us all and judge the living and the dead. Verse 17. Now, after several years, as he continues on with his defense, after several years, because he was away on his missionary journeys, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And if you remember, he went on his third missionary journey to the church and said, hey, churches throughout the Gentile region here, throughout Asia Minor, let's, let's give money. The church in Jerusalem is struggling. There's a famine. There's persecution. Let's collect some money. So that's what he's doing. He said, um, and so he says, I was bringing alms to my nation to present offerings. Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia they ought to be here before you and, 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 and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Again, he's like, there are these guys making these charges, but they're not even here today. There's no witnesses, verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul is saying, I've done nothing wrong. There's no reason for me to, to be put to death. There's no reason for me to be in prison. I've not violated any laws. This is a theological issue, and it's not punishable by, by, by death. It's not punishable by imprisonment. I'm on trial because of Jesus, he's telling them. Jesus, the Messiah who lived and died and rose again. I've broken no laws. You can't punish me. In verse 22, then we get the verdict from Felix. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but having some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from him attending to his needs. He says, yeah, okay, I'm going to make a decision, but I'm going to wait for Lysias to come from Jerusalem. And history tells us Lysias never came from Jerusalem. They never discussed this issue. And as you keep reading, and, and we'll tackle that some more next week, we'll see that Felix was kind of hoping for a bribe. He was hoping maybe some of Paul's rich friends would come to him and say, hey, hey, uh, we'll let Paul out if the price is right, you know, but, but that never happened. Felix knows Paul is innocent. He's not worthy of what he's done, being accused of. He's not worthy of death. But he also didn't want to release him because that would tick off the Jews and cause a riot and put him in bad books with Rome. So he keeps him in prison. And even in prison for those two years, we find Paul to be faithful. You know, as I studied this passage this week, there was two words or two themes that really came to mind. And, and, and you see these words on the screen already here this morning. The words triumph or tragedy. And the question was here in this chapter, and this question is for each one of you, is it a triumph or is it a tragedy? What have you done and what are you doing with Jesus here today? What are we doing with Jesus? The triumph of Jesus in your life, um, we see this. Um, and, and there's two main verses that really stuck out to me in this passage and actually in the chapter before this. We see Paul standing and giving a faithful, unashamed witness for Christ here before the courtroom here. But the trial is more than giving a faithful witness for Christ. There's a greater triumph here. Paul says two times in the last two chapters, he makes a powerful statement that caught my attention and it's something that we're going to dig into here this morning. And if you look at, at chapter 23, if you may have to just turn over one page in your Bible, in, in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. 
And then in chapter 24, moving it back to chapter 24 and verse 16, Paul said again, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. You see, Paul is talking about the power, the blessing, the triumph of a clear conscience. Do you have that today? Do you have a clear conscience before God and man? This is what Paul desired. This is where Paul was and this is where he desired to live his life. Paul is not saying and he never portrays that he was perfect, that he didn't sin. In fact, if you remember, he even says at one point, I'm the chief of sinners. In other places, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? And yet he continued to live and to pursue the best that he could, taking great pains to live a clean conscience before God and towards man. You know, so many people in our world today, so many here in this room, whether you're God's child or whether you are not God's child here today, many people are haunted by a guilty conscience. They don't have a clean or a clear conscience before God, before man. And what it does is it robs us of a life of power and victory and freedom and blessing and joy that we can and God wants us to experience. You see, conscience is an interesting thing. In Romans chapter 2, in verses 14 to 16, it, God's word tells us that we all have a conscience. Everyone on the face of this earth has a conscience. We are all born with an intuitive, God-given knowledge of right and wrong. Every culture that you go to, you will find all over the world that stealing, that lying, that murder, that adultery is wrong. It's innately built into us. We are all built with this awareness, with this God awareness, with this conscience. But here's the thing for every one of us. The standard of our conscience is higher than our own conscience. None of us, no one has ever lived up to the standard of their own conscience, have we? We've all fallen short. And so we can conclude from this that even the best goody two-shoes that you might know from your elementary school days or that you know at the workplace or in your family and how they try to promote themselves, none of them can live up to the standard of even their own conscience. They may pretend to, but they can't. They won't. And so we conclude that there's someone greater, some, someone superior, superior to our own ability and to our own conscience. And, and that, of course is from God. It's from a pure and a righteous, holy God whose conscience is clear, who set the standard in his creation when he made Ad, when, when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. But we see how sin has corrupted their lives and, and their conscience. When they had sinned, what did they do? What was the very first thing they did? They hid. They had a guilty conscience. And sin and a guilty conscience causes us to run. To run from people, to run from God, to run from the truth. When instead we ought to be running towards him. And we're going to see why we ought to run towards him today. The Bible teaches that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of his standard and that means that none of us can live up to that standard of even in our lives, but even in our own conscience, no matter how hard you try. And as a result, when we do mess up, when we do um, sin, when we hurt others, when we sin against God, we feel this guilt and we feel this shame and this remorse. And we do different things to try to ease our conscience, maybe by trying to do good. Maybe if I just do more good things in life, God will overlook that and, and, and I won't feel as bad. And there's so many things that get done on the face of our world because it just makes me feel better and because we're trying to relieve a, a, a dirty or a, a, a guilty conscience. And somehow we hope that the good will somehow outweigh the bad in God's eyes. And you know what? It never will. A guilty conscience can haunt and plague the unbeliever from ever turning to Christ 
and it can keep them from ever coming to faith in Jesus Christ, thinking that after what I've done, God could never, ever forgive me. You don't know how many times I've heard that in my life, where people have confided in me. I heard it a lot when we pastored in Alberta outside of just near a a Canadian military base and we had a lot of soldiers living in our community and I'd invite them to church and they would be glad for their wives, for their children to go but oftentimes when I'd invite them or get to know them and talk to them out in the community, they say, you know what, I'd love to come to your church but I'm scared that if I walked in the doors of your church, God would strike me dead. He would strike me with a lightning bolt. And I'm like, why would you say that? And he said, after the things I've done, after the things I've seen, there's no way he could forgive me. And you know, I would talk with them and I would joke and say, hey, you can come, we have a lead roof. The lightning won't get you. And we laugh and joke. And, and, but then I, all joking aside, share with them how any and all sin God forgives. We can be set free from. But I've heard that many, many times. One young man, remember him coming in my office and said to me, he said, I love Jesus, but I've committed the unpardonable sin. And I said, tell me more about it. And he, as he went through a crisis in his life, he cursed out. He says, I knew enough of the Bible back then to know that if I cursed out the Holy Spirit and blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, that that would cross the line. And he said, I was so mad at God that I did that one day. And I said, the very fact that you're sitting here with a remorseful, soft heart, means that you have not committed that unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is so severe and you are so hardened that you wouldn't even show up and talk to a pastor. You wouldn't even try to, you just go out and you continue to keep living your own way and it was so wonderful to watch him walk in the freedom that Christ brought to him through the truth of God's word. At times we hear people say, well, just let conscience be your guide. <laughs> That's not smart because my conscience is selfish at times. My, my conscience is, is stained by sin. It's all been affected by that. God's word is our standard. And sadly, what can so easily happen in our lives over time, though, and we see this all the time, is that our conscience becomes seared. We hear stories in the news week after week. Sadly, it's a weekly thing of people committing the grossest and the most horrific and terrible acts towards other human beings and seemingly expressing no guilt, no shame, no remorse. They become so hard and so callous and you can have a seared and a damaged conscience that you no longer feel anything and that has happened over time. They weren't born like that. But circumstances, oftentimes even outside of their control, But Paul is talking here about him having a clear conscience before God. And Paul had a past, didn't he? He wasn't the righteous goody two-shoes when you look at some of the things that he did in his life. He had a past. He felt justified in what he did, but it was wrong. You can't tell me that he did not walk through flashbacks and memories of what he did as he caused the death of Stephen to be the first martyr and to see many others who were persecuted, put to death at his own hand as he gave the command for that to happen. He was responsible for the death of many followers of the way. And he's honest about it in his writings, of his ongoing battle and struggle, and yet he talks about having a clear, a clean conscience. And how is that possible? How is that possible for him? And how is that possible for you and I here today? to walk out of here no matter what you have done, where you are at in your life, even here this morning, to know you can walk out of here today forgiven, cleansed, and a conscience that has been cleaned. Not by my word, but by the word of God. How is this possible? Well, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 4, you can take and read that this, this week, some good light reading. The sinner would take a perfect, unblemished animal that they would pay for or purchase or have that was a costly possession for them. And depending on who you were, it was a bull, a goat, or a lamb. And they would bring that unblemished animal to the temple. And the sinner would lay hands on the head of that animal. 
signifying their sin was being transferred from them onto that perfect, innocent lamb or goat or bull. That spotless, innocent animal would become the payment, would become the substitute for that person's sin. This wasn't a skipping your way to church that Sunday. This was an emotional, sobering time. As the priest would take the animal's throat and the blood would pour out and blood would be sprinkled on the altar. The ceremony, the sacrifice was meant to horrify and to sober the sinner as they stood and they watched this animal, this innocent animal die because of their own sin. The sinner would live and the animal would die. It just didn't seem right. There would be sorrow and deep repentance on behalf of the sinner. I don't want to ever sin again. This is what the animal has to go through because of my sin. Knowing that because of the death of the animal, their sin would be forgiven, would be atoned for in the eyes of God. Because after all, God said, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That's the costliness and the ugliness and the brutality of our sin. Someone has to pay. This ceremony, though, in the Old Testament that went on for many, many centuries was just a faint shadow of what would take place on the cross where Jesus, God's son, God in the flesh, left the glory of heaven, came down to this earth, lived a perfect life, a spotless, innocent lamb, died a brutal death on the cross. He died as a substitute, bearing not only our sin, but the wrath of God that was so rightly headed our way. This is love so amazing, so divine. God's word tells us in 1 John 1, 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from most sins. Is that what it says? No. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what? All, All sin. Everything. Those wicked thoughts you've had, those unrighteous deeds, the corruption, the evilness, the torment, the things you've been involved in, all forgivable by God through his son. And not only are our sins forgiven, folks, but he cleanses our conscience. Hebrews 9, 14 says that the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. And then listen to Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Go home and read these verses. They're on the screen, but you read them this week. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, all because of Jesus. For the child of God who accepts this, it's available to all, no matter what you have done. It is available to all who believe and put their faith, their trust, their confidence in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when we understand the depth of his love, his sacrifice, how his body was beaten, how he bled out for us, it makes us look at sin and see it as detestable and costly and we don't, we want to run from sin, not rather continue to keep living a life where we're embracing sin. We want to see victory happen. We have the word of God. We have brothers and sisters. We have the grace of God in the church of Jesus Christ to have brothers and sisters walk with us and hold us accountable so that we can have victory in these areas of sin in our lives, whether it be in our private thoughts or whether it be in our actions. Forgiven, conscience cleansed, all available. And it's available to all who ask. And this is how it's done. It's not just simply saying, oh, Jesus, come into my heart and 
be my forever friend, it's, it's more than that. It's by admitting that we have sinned, we have failed, we have messed up in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others, that we have sinned against a holy God. It's understanding that, the holiness of God. And it's believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the right and the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb who died in our place, absorbing the wrath and the punishment that we so rightly deserve. And when we understand that, we repent and we confess our sins, turning from our sins, desiring to cut it off in our lives, desiring to forsake all sin, forsake lust, greed, addictions, worldly pursuits, surrendering it all to Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus, nothing in my hand I bring. It's only to him, to his cross, to his salvation that we cling by putting our face, faith and trust and confidence in him. And this isn't just a one and done repentance that you do on the day of salvation and then you just go and live your best life now. It's a continuous life of ongoing repentance because why we're going to continue to sin. Yes, the power of sin has been broken, but this presence and, 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 and its control over us continues to, to, to dog us and, and, and we try to dodge it, we try to avoid it, and yet we fall into certain areas in, in our growth as believers in Christ. And this is where, again, as we continue on, though, as followers of Christ, that we make war on our sin and we see victory happen. We'll continue to struggle, but in humility, we keep coming back to repentance confessing our sin, desiring God to change us and to help us and to lean on the word of God, on prayer, the spiritual disciplines, but then also through the body of Christ, through one another to walk with us, holding us accountable. And then as a child of God, when we're reminded of, by the devil or by others, because sometimes others can do the devil's work, can't they? When others come along and re try to remind us of our past, we need to remember Christ's triumph. When we start feeling the guilt and the shame of what has happened, we remember that the cross is greater than. Yes, we remember and aware of our sin and the horror and the damage that it caused, but we're more aware of the cross and the love and the forgiveness and the healing and the cleansing that comes that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross covers all sin. Notice what Paul says here in verse 16. He says, I take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. In other words, this isn't easy. It's an ongoing keeping short accounts with God. This is a priority in Paul's life that he is living at peace with all men around him. That he's living in a life, living his life with a right conscience before God. Even last week when we see him lash out in anger, we see him all of a sudden when he realized that he had crossed the line, we see him recanting. He quotes God's word, realizing he sinned against God's word. We do whatever it takes to be right with God and to be right with others. Just on Friday, it was funny, I went, um, Charlotte and I met up at the end of the day, went to uh, my favorite store, uh, which is? Costco, uh, love that place. Uh, had to make a return, and, and as we finished up the return and we were going to enjoy a nutritious meal together, you know, Friday date night, um, uh, Charlotte was wondering, what's taking so long? And she was waiting, she came out like, what's going on? Like, how hard is it to get a return here, you know? And not that she was impatient, it was kind of a little over the top, but she didn't know what was going on. Here they had refunded me the money, but they gave me $13 too much. And the, my first thought was, cha-ching, 13 bucks, that should cover supper, you know, and, uh, you know, the Lord is good. <laughs> of course, I, I did, I did think that, it's just $13, it's Costco, it's not a big deal. And I'm feeling this, and, and then I just start walking away, and then I said, hey, bud, you know what, you messed up here. You need to charge me $13 more, and he's like, what? Why are you telling me this? And I'm like, because I need to be right in this, that I wouldn't be able to live before my, my own conscience has been also before God. I want to just do what's right. Oh, this makes so much work for me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but this is a good thing. And, and so went through it, took, you know, he, didn't, he was a rookie. He didn't know what he was doing exactly. 
But I walked out of there knowing that I was right before God and man. Because I know that one day the Lord would say, hey, remember when you ripped off 13 bucks from Costco? <laughs> He's done that to me. I had to phone a college president over some things I did in my third year of college. I thought they might take my degree away. By this time, I was already a holy and a righteous pastor. And yet, I had to make the call. And before I did that, as God convicted me of it, life was hell. It was, it was constantly on my mind. And you know, that trajectory that happened there as I made that phone call and made things right, and I came to the point, I didn't care if they took my degree away. I didn't care if I got fired from the church because they found out I was a cheater. I didn't care. I wanted to be right with God no matter the cost. Forgiveness, but the freedom that comes. And I believe the trajectory in my life, I, I desire to live that way, but I don't live it perfectly. And God continues to remind me through his Holy Spirit and how I need that cleansing often and daily. And yet we can be so prou- proud and stubborn in these areas. But to enjoy freedom, power, victory, it comes through a clean conscience. It requires honesty and humility before God and before others. We're not going to get to the tragedy today. We're going to save that for next week, Lord willing. Don't miss that sermon because that is the biggest tragedy we're going to talk about. Bring a friend who doesn't know Christ and come ready to learn next week. But this morning we need to focus in on the question is, are you walking in triumph today? Do you know the forgiveness and the forgiveness and the grace of Christ in your life today? Do you have a clear conscience before God and others? Are there things you need to confess and make right towards God, towards others? Maybe you've lied, stolen, cheated. Maybe there's an area you need to come clean up. Maybe there's a relationship you need to end. Maybe there's something you're doing, you need to stop doing it. You need some help and some accountability and some wisdom and guidance. We're here for you in that. Maybe you're holding on to bitterness. You know what God's word says, but, but, but you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness. Today starts the journey of I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive. To be right, clean conscience before God and before others. The power of the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, the unblemished lamb, overwhelms it all. Amen. Listen to the word of God as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And ask the band to come at this time and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a special time. This is for those who are believers in Jesus Christ who have committed their life to following him. Again, not just pray a prayer and yeah, I'm in. But your, your desire here today is to live for him in all areas of your life. Nothing hidden. Living with a, a clean conscience before God and before others. That is something that we all need to examine ourselves. And God's word is clear that before we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we're examining ourselves, repenting of any areas of sin in our lives. That we'd be right before God and before others. The communion table, take a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup. You can take it back to your seat with you. You can partake right away. You can take it in your seat and spend some time reflecting on the great love of Christ that overwhelms all of our sin. Listen to his word here this morning. John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12. The Lord says, I will remember your sins no more. Amen? Galatians 2.20, for the child of God, as we worship the Lord in a moment here together, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.